Remain standing as we read the Word of God. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy 2. If you're using your smart device, uh, you'll scroll over to 1 Timothy 2. We're continuing in a verse-by-verse study of this uh, incredible book that tells us in the last days how the church is supposed to live and to act and has a lot of good application for us as well in the different uh, arenas of life. And this is one of those passages that uh, does this. Now, we, and I'll probably mention this again, for the next several weeks, we'll be dealing with this passage. And uh, so we're going to read the whole thing this morning and then go to one particular phrase in the, uh, in the passage. And we'll start with 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, read through the end of the chapter. Paul says, I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love, and holiness with self-control. Father, this is your inspired word. You have given it to us, not just to a group of Christians at the church of Ephesus around 2,000 years ago. It was for them in their day, in their culture. It is for us today in our culture, knowing that you want us to hear it and receive it and to by the power of your Holy Spirit, to put it into practice to live it out. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us to hear what is foundational to this vital truth that we have just read today for the church and for the home and for marriages, so that we might honor you and glorify you in everything that we do. Now, give us hearing ears and receptive hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to, as I said a few minutes ago, go to the foundation, the, uh, the touchstone for this passage of Scripture. Indeed, anything that deals with husband-wife, man-woman relationships is going to go back to this. And so with all that you see on your outline there, and we'll be going through this, uh, the Lord willing, I've planned to, to take four weeks to do this, today to lay the foundation, next week to come back and talk about what it means for God to give instructions to the men uh, as the head, and then come back that next week and talk about the woman's responsibility and her identity and role just a little bit more, and then to wrap that up as it pertains not only, again, to life in the family and the marriage, but also the church. And so today, you'll see what's highlighted there. All of this is important, but it cannot be properly understood and applied without this foundational principle that I have highlighted. Paul bases everything that he has said. And for some of you who've not read this or you haven't read it in a while, this sounds almost bizarre living in our culture today. But Paul bases it on one vital principle. In fact, I'll give you this hint. I may come back to this again. Whenever Paul or Jesus talk about the husband-wife relationship, the relationship of man and woman in the church, they always go back to this argument. The argument of God's identity and role of men and women, and it always goes back to creation. Now, 
Let me give a couple of things. This is not by way of disclaimer, but because I know of the pressures that sometimes we feel when hard sayings, you know, the Bible is filled with hard sayings, right? A lot of things that are difficult at face value to take or difficult to, to, to figure out, what does this mean for me? And I thought back to a time in the life of Jesus when he's, he's teaching and he is preaching and there were a lot of people following him who were called his disciples, his followers. And Jesus has just been teaching them some things that according to their cultural religious background, they said, whoa, this is tough, Jesus. And they made a decision. Here they were following Jesus. Jesus tells them some things that were really difficult to understand. And here's what happened. When many of his disciples, and and by the way, these could be called the religious people and non-religious perhaps, who were just following him. They were interested in the healings, interested in some of the things like the Beatitudes and all the rest of that. But then it comes to this point. When they heard this, this difficult thing, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, do you take offense at this? Because the other disciples decided, we're not going to stick around. We're going to leave. So he turns to his 12 and he says, are you guys offended at this? Are are you guys going to leave me too? After this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. That is a stunning statement, folks. That could be said of today's church in some ways. They're no longer walking with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, he looks right at them, at the twelve, and he says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, for the twelve, he answered them, answered Jesus like this, to Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. In other words, we read words like this that I just read, and I, I know it for a fact, probably not in this church, much, but I know that there would be some situations that reading a passage like this would automatically bring grumbling, and because of the, the, the culture around us that we're really not going to talk about today, but many people would find this a hard sell. But the ultimate question is, where do we go for authority? Where do we go when we want to get the words that really count? How many of you treat user manuals like I do most often? Now, I'm talking to the guys here. Every tool that I have, everything that I have has come with a user manual. And right at the very top, in bold letters, it always says, please read the instructions before using. What do you guys do? Then you put it together, or you try to turn it on, and all the rest of that. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten into that process, and something glitches or I have an extra part, or whatever, and guess what I have to do? Go back to the owner's manual that gives me the right instruction. Let me tell you something about this and about owner's manual. Those owner's manuals don't care if their instructions are palatable. They don't even care if they're understandable. Half the time they're written in a language with broken English that I can't even comprehend. But it is my job to try to discern what it is that is telling me the truth so that I can get whatever that owner's manual is talking about to work the way that the manufacturer wants it to work for my good. And so that I won't complain to the manufacturer that it's broken when it's really not. It's just me. 
So let me ask you to do a couple of things, men and women, men and women. For the next several weeks, I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things. We're not going to look at the problems associated with the teaching that I just gave you. We're going to zero in on this one phrase, the argument that goes all the way back to creation, pre-sin, and pre-fall. And that is important. I'll be saying that over and over again. So let me ask you to do about four things as we work through this today, next week, the next week, and the next week. By the way, uh, for those of you at home, and and there's a group over in our new member class, we're going to encourage them to listen to today before we get to next week. And so if if you're having problems kind of getting through this, you you can go online and re-listen to this. I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture a lot of things that are going to be foundational for your understanding, hopefully from God's point of view. Here's the first thing that I ask of you. Affirm that God's ways are always the best, even when you don't fully understand them. Don't let, please don't let human weakness, either yours or someone else's, like the person you're married to, or a family member that has messed it up. Don't don't let people's weaknesses, don't let bad experiences, don't let cultural or even religious pressures from without cause you to doubt God's ways. I guess we could sing a song, Jonathan, and go home with that. That's, That's for everything, but particularly here. Number two, Realize that unless you and I are spirit-filled and submissive to God's revelation, these words will feel, and here's a word, I I could think of no better word for this, I'll define it for you, unless you're spirit-filled, unless you're submissive to the Word of God, these words that I just read and will be talking about over the next four weeks will feel onerous to you. They will feel excessively hard and burdensome and gross. That's the best way I could identify that word. By the way, nobody likes submission, do they? Do they? Luke 9.23, you held that answer, and that's a That's a good sign because that's not a trick question, but it is an important question. Here's what Jesus said about the Christian life. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. This is submission in action. Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And A lot of people that I would ask that question to, kind of a trick question, get it out there, People don't like submission. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus liked submission. And in the Trinity, there is perfect submission. Equal worth, equal value, the the persons of the Trinity. But there is this beautiful picture of submission. Jesus submitted to the Father. The, The Holy Spirit submits to Jesus and submits to the Father as well. But look at the words that he said. And we often use these words, but this should be our attitude when we receive any teaching of Scripture particularly the hard things, but I do as the Father has commanded me, everything, so that the world may know that I love the Father. This this was not a mechanical thing with Jesus, and it should not be a mechanical thing with us. This should be highly relational. Well, I tell you what, students, don't you ever hear me say that these things about which we talk are mechanical. You plug in the right formula, you do this. This is organic, this is relational, and it's vitally important. Then he says, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. That is a picture of the beautiful submission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, please, please, please try to give me the benefit of the doubt that as I teach this, I love you, and I want the best for you, and that I love God, and I love His Word, and that I am so incredibly imperfect. But what I will do is do my best to share with you what God says and what it means for us. Fair enough? Okay. 
I said I wasn't going to talk about the, some of the negative responses, but I, I'm telling you, I've said this before. Had a seminary professor that used to tell us this when he was talking about certain things. He'd say, no, it was Bill Toller, Dr. Bill Toller. He'd say, students, students, listen up. It's bad enough to be understood, let alone misunderstood. He was saying, give me the benefit of the doubt that I really want this to impact you. Romans 10, 17 says it like this. And this is why we go verse by verse through the Bible. We don't skip over anything. We look at it. What does this mean for us today? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, so we, we share these things, the word of God, because this is going to increase your faith and encourage you in your faith. But for those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, this also can be a salvation verse. That if you're here and you're saying, whoa, this makes absolutely no sense to me, then faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And I'm, I'm prayerful that over the next several weeks, in fact, every sermon that the word of God, energized by the spirit of God, will produce that repentance and faith that is necessary to come to faith in Christ for some of you. And I'm convinced that if these words are heard, if they're understood to the level of your understanding, all of you, men and women, boys and girls, students, all of you, and if they're applied correctly, listen to me, really could, this is not an overstatement, really could overhaul, radically transform the face of this church. Individual marriages and young people as they hear and as they grow and seek to input what God says about them into their dating relationships and their relationships with, with other guys and other gals. And it could spill over. It could spill over into our community uh, around us. So those are four things that I just ask of you as we today get to the heart of the passage and uh, Paul lays the foundation in understanding the identity and roles. You can write those two words down because they're so important. Identities and roles, those kind of go together, all right? And then we'll talk more next week and the week after that about individually the roles of, of, of men, the identity of men, and how that spills over into our responsibilities we're not going to talk much about the, the, just list the responsibilities of men or women today. We're going right to the heart of the subject of the, the why, okay? So let me give you a couple of uh, 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 things. We'll go back because Paul, Paul points us back in the middle of all of these things where he's good, gracious. He's talking about women dressing modestly. Am I really going to talk about that in two weeks? Pray for me as I prepare. Jan and I have already had a lot of good discussion about this. Does this mean, I'm asking you to hold those questions until we get to those passages. And by the way, I, I, I've discovered, I think, something new. When somebody talks to me about marriage or, or the church and men and women and do we ordain, and, uh, th he's getting to that. That's what he's talking about. Right after this passage, the elders and all the rest of that. The first thing I'm going to do is, what did God ordain from the beginning? That's how Paul did it. Hey, you want to know the answer to this? Let's go back to the beginning. All right? Let's do. Let's look at it. You remember this, don't you? Here we are, creation, the sixth day of creation. God, the Godhead, steps back. Even there, there was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so in perfect harmony, he makes this incredible utterance. I'm going to create, we're going to create something else in perfect harmony. This is pre-sin, pre-fall. We're not talking about the junk that happened after and that still is in effect today that can be overcome through salvation and sanctification. So God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. Now, get it, get, get it, uh, you might write this down. Man, just use a capital M. Let us make man, mankind, man, in our image. 
So how's he going to do that? Let's move on. Genesis 1.27. Here's the answer. So God created who? Oh, come on, come on. Interactive. Man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Now watch this. Male and female. Man and woman. But he uses two specific words. Male and female He created them. So when God created man, He created male and female to make up man, Him. All right, let's move on. Genesis 1, excuse me, 2, 7. Now, Genesis 1 just gives the encapsulated form. Genesis 2 really spreads it out and talks about it. The Lord God formed from the dust. What do we do when we die? We go back to the dust. Why? Our bodies were created from the dust. Someday we'll get a glorified body. Wow. That is just so cool for those of us who are believers. But God formed man from the the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being, separate from all of the cattle, all of the livestock, all of the beasts of the field, and way separate from plants. This this man is really something. And then we go along, and man is put in the garden, given responsibilities, and we'll we'll come back to that in just a second. But then the Lord, and this was, uh, please don't see this as an afterthought from God. Maybe I'm the only one that that saw that one time. It kind of feels like that when God made man, there's an old joke, scratches his head, and as an afterthought, he says, I can do better than that, and so he made woman. That's not what was going on. God, go back to chapter 1, God created man, and he created male and female, and so we're seeing it spelled out. And this is, I'm skipping a lot of this stuff, but God said, after all of the days of creation, where he looked back and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He stepped back and he said, you know what? This is not good. This is not good that man should be alone. Male, okay? This This is what it means. Capital M, but this is male. Man should not be alone as male only, And then one of the most stunning words in the Bible. No, I won't go negative here. One of the most stunning words in the Bible. I will make the perfect, absolutely the most. Could God make anything less? Remember, this is pre-sin, pre-fall. Could he make anything less than the perfect help meet, King James? I love the way this translation says it, the perfect helper fit for him. God could do nothing less. This is God's pre-sin, pre-fall intent and purpose for man created as male and female. Hang on to that because we're, we're just getting started as to some of the, the implications. And, and here, here's part of the role. Let's just throw this in. Man, capital N, as man and woman, male and female, have been given charge, dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the, air, the heavens, the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man, as male and female... Is given dominion. Dominion. Remember that word. Because when the curse came in, that word comes into play as a part of the curse in the relationship between men and women. This is the way God designed. This is His perfect design, His perfect intent. And granted, in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some of the violations of this. And how to correct some of these things that are violations. But this is God's original pre-sin, pre-fall intent for the purpose of men and women. Now, notice several things. I'm not going to go back. 
put them on the screen, but I think they'll come to your memory as I mention them. God created man, both male and female, in his glorious likeness. The Latin is imago Dei, beautiful picture, to uniquely reflect the image of God. That's how God made them. Man and woman were created to be equal, absolutely equal in being, in value, in personhood, yet incredibly different in identity and role. Those are two words. I, 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 I paused so you could write them down. You already wrote down the identity part of it. Identity and role, two different things. While equal in worth and personhood and value before God, there is no inequality whatsoever there. And it's kind of like I said about the Trinity. Is there inequality between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in terms of value? But there is in terms of their role. Each one. So that's the first thing to notice out of this creation account. Are you with me? Are you tracking? Questions? Write down your questions. They'll be answered in the next couple of weeks, and if they're not, call me or email me or whatever. Just don't do like the other disciples of Jesus and leave because these are hard sayings. Just look to the Word. Second thing, God created man with two, man, capital M, with two distinct identities. Let's put another word in there, unless I did a minute ago, genders. Identity slash gender. Male, female, identity slash gender. And that means that it was and it still is God's intent that males and females be different and complementary. A helpmeet fit. Folks, it is a biological truth, a biological reality that men and different, men and women are different at the deepest levels of their beings. I am not a doctor, but I'm going to quote a doctor who spoke at a TED conference. Now, I don't know. I haven't listened. I've listened to some TED Talks that are very interesting, variety of subjects, but I don't think that the TED Talks are a bastion of conservative, right-thinking kinds of, of things, secular, technology, education, design. There is a, a doctor who not too long ago came on, and she is a doctor who specializes in women's medicine. Women's medicine. I, it, it's kind of interesting. I listened to this clip, and she said this. Every cell in the human body has a sex, which means that men and women are different right down to the cellular level. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the end of your little finger. I know you can't look at the cell, the individual cell, unless you had a... Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that is true. Apparently, from this doctor, some of you doctors in here, take me to task if I'm not saying this right, but down to the cellular level, you're looking at your tip of your finger, aren't you, honey? Okay. We are different. Biology, therefore, is not, is not, has never been and never will be a social construct. To me, that's a head scratcher. Our brains are different. Hello? Joshua and Elizabeth, who, who else is here that I recently married? Uh, Kiavi, are you here today? Or uh, Let's see, who else? Anthony? Oh, anyway, okay, I'll just use them. 
I, I share in almost all of my wedding ceremonies, and I ask the guy this. It's, it's always kind of funny. I say, well, like, like I said to Joshua, Joshua, have you noticed that Elizabeth is different from you? And it's true, right down to the way she thinks. Right down to her brain. Right down to her body shape. They're different. Right down to our body strengths and our reproductive systems. One, maybe, maybe one of the clearest examples of this is that we, the fact that we are complementary in gender is the fact that each sex has one half of a reproductive system requiring the opposite sex to complete it so that it can realize its full function. So, from what I just said a minute ago, man, as male only, God realized that something needed to be done, and He fashioned the woman out of the man. And this is different than He, he took the man out of the dirt, and He fashioned the woman out of the man and brought them together. And I'll be talking, write down this word, you've heard it before, but it is so important, the principle of one flesh. One flesh. And they were. They were one flesh. They were the perfect fit, man and woman. In fact, the not good that God said, seeing man alone, then at the completion of that became, guess what? Not just good. Guess what? What did he say when he brought man and woman together as one, one flesh? What did he say? Very good. Very good. I topped it with this, God said. I knocked it out of the park when I made man as two genders, two identities, and brought them together as one flesh. I quoted a very smart person who's a doctor. That's on one end of the spectrum. I'm going to quote another very smart person. Presbyterian minister who loved kids so much that he developed a program for kids. You watch it, and some people would say that has to be the hokiest thing around. It is not. Fred Rogers had a program from 1968 to 2001. And, and he, he got off some zingers, folks. Again, I'm not going to go negative, but I wonder if he were here today and sang, that he sang the song that he, that he did sing in 50, at least 50 of his programs. And the tape that I watched, he was standing over a fish tank, and he's talking to the kids. And, you know, he always said, I like you just the way you are. You, you don't need to change. You're, you're good the way you are. You know, and, and he, he was talking about a basic reality. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to sing this song. Thank, thank you. <laughs> Somebody said, praise God. <laughs> but I am going to quote it, the whole thing, because I think he, he gets some really good theology in here. And I think that's probably, maybe, I don't know, all of his spiritual condition, but this song would demonstrate that he, was, he really cared for kids. He really cared for them developing in the right way. He cared about them learning this thing called masculinity and femininity. And so he, he was talking about the fish. The verses I read to you from the very beginning of the, the, the time together, fearfully and wonderfully made. I think these words indicate that. He's talking about the fish, obviously referring to little boys and little girls. Some are fancy on the outside. Some are fancy on the inside. Everybody's fancy. Everybody's fine. Your body's fancy, and so is mine. That probably is a better way for kids than saying you're fearfully and wonderfully made. But, but say it, he did. And then he goes on to define what he's talking about. Listen to this. Boys are boys from the beginning. He's saying that, and then he said, when you're a born a boy, baby, 
you grow up to be a bigger boy and then a man. Then he sings, girls are girls right from the start. Then he says, when you're born a girl baby, you grow up to be a bigger girl and then a woman. Kicks back to the chorus. Everybody's fancy. Everybody's fine. Your body's fancy. So is mine. And then he hunkers down. Girls, little baby girls grow up to be big girls. And then women, little boys the same. Girls grow up to be the mommies. Boys grow up to be the daddies. Everybody's fancy. Everybody's fine. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he ends it with this. I think you're a special person. I like your ins and outs. Everybody's fancy. Everybody's fine. Your body's fancy. So is mine. Biology is not a social construct. It's not a matter of this is your reality. This is my reality. Reality is reality. I'm going to go back to Mr. Rogers next week, talking about little boys. But he was always wanting children to know the difference between imagination, which is a very good thing, and reality. And so he said this, then we'll move on. I, I just, he nailed it theologically. He said, a child's healthy imagination, listen to this, parents, grandparents, a child's healthy Imagination cannot exist in the absence of respect for physical reality. Children must know that they are special and fine, fancy, just the way they are, whether born a boy baby or born a girl baby. And I I shared this with you. Again, parents, grandparents, young men, young women, so that not only you can know, but you can begin to teach your children and your grandchildren the reality that God created us with masculinity and femininity and that it is a very good thing. That's the first thing to notice out of this. I've got one, two, three, four to go and then we're finished. I, I thought before I, I came here, this, this has to be one of the most important. They're all important. But this has to be one of the most important messages I think I've ever preached. For, for everybody. Paul thought it was important back then. I think it's important now. And I think we do because God thinks it's important. Second thing that we get out of this passage of Scripture, we're going to give, we're, we're going to run through a bunch of stuff to show this. God created man, the male, first to demonstrate, write down this word, headship. Rule, authority, leadership. All of those are words that are synonyms for the word headship. But headship probably captures the the meaning of what God created more than those others. Man uniquely was created masculine, as the head of the woman. Let me go on. Headship is timeless. From the garden, pre-fall, to right now, to the end of the age. It is universal. It's not just a cultural consideration. It is God-ordained. And I'm going to say this a lot next week, so that men as the head will mimic their head, Jesus Christ. So let me show you a couple of places where I believe that headship is clearly taught. New Testament. Boom, boom, boom. We're going to go through these quick. Paul says it. I just read it a few minutes ago. Why does Paul not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over the man? Because of the principle of headship. She is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, headship, and then Eve. Here's another verse, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 3. 
Now, I commend you, he says. Now, get a picture of all, all of these passages have to do with leadership in the church or the home. I commend you because you remember me in everything, maintain the traditions, the biblical things that I'm handing down, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Look at that beautiful picture of submission. Wonderful. Absolutely marvelous. Then we go on in 1 Corinthians a little bit later in chapter 11. For man, and here he goes back, the same argument that he was using in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For man was not made from the woman, woman from man. Neither was the man created from woman, but woman for the man. The principle of headship. Let's move on. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 14. Women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. What is that? That's a big problem for a lot of people, but underlying everything, I want you to see this, we'll come back and talk about some of the problems. Underlying all of it is the principle of headship. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And let's wrap it up with Ephesians chapter 5, one of the most beautiful pictures of headship there is. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits as the church submits to Christ. So the wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then this. Now, this, this is a quote, direct quote out of uh, Genesis chapter 2, the creation of man and woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. Have you ever, you, doesn't that seem weird? Doesn't a woman leave her parents? No, because the man as the head is the initiator. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is the principle pre-sin, pre-fall that is the intent and purpose for every marriage and every vestige of leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. This mystery is profound, and this is what we're going to be looking at a lot over and over, mimicking Jesus, mimicking Jesus. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's look at the women. We, we saw that in the passages that were uh, previous. God fashioned the woman from the man, as a helpmeet. That is her identity. Women, that is your identity. A helpmeet, a helper that is fit for her husband. And again, that is, I, I know that, that we're talking to a, a group with singles and young people, all the rest, but this is the principle of headship that grows out of the creation of male and female. Now listen to me, women. Please listen. Far from being an inferior role that you were created out of man as the helpmeet, it is what God ordained uniquely to complete the man, the male, and make them both uniquely man. I'm going to quote a guy, and, and uh, I still think of some of the best theology. Some of you have never seen the original Rocky. I'm not talking about Rocky Hales. I'm, I'm talking about Rocky Balboa. And in that movie, you know, Rocky, he's this dumb boxer, and he falls in love with this girl, and Polly, his manager, his trainer, it's his sister. And Polly can't, for the life of him, imagine what Rocky, you, you know what I'm, where I'm going with this, some of you. He can't imagine what Rocky sees in, in, his, in his sister, Andrea. And he, he said, what do you see in her? And Rocky, remember what he said? Come on. She fills my gaps. 
Rocky may have not been the best theologian, but he said, she is the helpmeet that fits me. This word, this word is an incredible word. Just do a word study on Blue Letter Bible. How is this word most often used? Helper, help me. How is it most often used? It's most often used of God. Here's a representative verse. Now, I'm not saying, women, that you're God and, you know, the rest of that. But I am saying that this word helper is not a, a, a term of inferiority. How could it be if it's used of God who is, look at this, then the Lord God said, well, this is the helper fit for him, then this is the one I wanted, Psalm 46.1. Get this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. Same word, same exact word, in time of trouble. Women, you're not just a helper, you're a strong helper. Every wedding ceremony that I do, I say these words to the women. I talk to the, the guys, I talk to the women. And I'll say to, to, the, to the bride, and then I'll say to the, the girl, the ladies in the audience, you have no idea, really, of the incredible power of your encouragement to the husband that God has given to you. Women, you, you, you don't. You, you, some of you are, are getting it. I, I'm going to tell you, I was thinking about this this week. My wife, Jan, may have a lot of weaknesses. And your wife may have, have a lot of weaknesses, men, but I'll guarantee that there is no one on the face of the earth that brings to me, and here's a biblical word for you, succor that support, that, that help, that encouragement. She, she's a strong helper. Women, that's, that's why God created the female, the feminine part of man to be this submitter to, this one who lines up under his loving leadership, and it is a powerful thing. Now, one more thing here. Let's just move on. We've got to in the interest of time. Let me say two more things, and then, then I want to draw it to a close. I mentioned this a minute ago. Man and woman together. Man was given dominion over creation, but I want you to see the principle of headship at work, okay, for all of us. It was Adam, not Eve, who was the representative of mankind. Okay. It was Adam, not Eve, that was given the command not to eat. It was Adam, not Eve, that had the responsibility and the accountability to God for not eating the forbidden fruit. It was Adam, and not Eve, now I'll go back to this, who was responsible and men, we still are. Wow. Next week, come, come, come ready because we're going to talk about what that means. It is the man who is responsible to initiate the one flesh principle in every marriage, not the woman. So that's the principle of headship. This was all a part of God's grand very, very good intent and purpose in the creation of man as male and female. And ultimately, here's, here's the bottom line. All of this ultimately was to be a picture of Christ and His church. And that's why we, we take that, we take it as a teaching, not only for the marriage, the home, but we also take it as a teaching for leadership in the church. We'll be talking about that. It's interesting that right after this section, what is the next thing that Paul talks about? The qualifications of leaders in the church. And the principle of headship is absolutely essential. But it's always to model Christ in the church. It was true then, it is true today. And I've quoted some quotes over there on the side. I'll go back to a statement that I made at the very beginning. If we could grab 
on to this. It would radically alter relationships. We're talking about relationships in your family, my family. The male headship principle, it's all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. From the tabernacle to the temple to the synagogue to the church and on until the end of time. So that is laying out his argument from the priority of creation in the garden. Lots of points there that we will get to in the days ahead. Bottom line that Mr. Rogers reminded us of is fancy. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And in order to walk in God's design and intent and purpose, take something, repentance and faith, Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. You've come in with someone or you've come in by yourself, but you don't know Jesus. Repentance and faith, turning away from playing God and fighting God. That's a great definition of sin. And turning by faith to Jesus, to Jesus and His finished work on the cross. That repentance and faith is not something that you just start with. You do it as a submissive follower of Christ, male or female, every day of the week, every week of the month, and every month of the year from here on out. Father, I pray now that today as we consider the things that you have put before us in your word, I pray that I've uh, handled your word accurately. Pray that we would take it for what you have to say to us and then work out the implications of all of that. I pray, Lord, that we would receive your word with humility, always accepting what you say about us without argument, not what others say about us, but about what you say about us. So, Father, if there is one today who needs to repent, turn by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, I pray that that would be done. Father, I pray that for those of us who know you, we would continue on this journey of growing to be like Jesus, not only individually, but also in our relationships, husbands and wives, men and women, and in the church as male and female. Father, that you would do a great work among us. Lord, it's all for your glory, but it's also for our good, both now and for the future and ultimately. So we thank you. We praise you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.